Welcome back to another episode of Romans. My name is Jonathan Chan. I'm so glad that you can join me today as we continue our series on Romans and embark on chapter 11. But before we begin, let's start off with a video clip and we'll be right back. What have I done, Alfred? Everything my family, my father built. Divine legacy is more than bricks and mortar, sir. I wanted to save Gotham. I failed. Why do we fall, sir? So that we can learn to pick ourselves up. Given up on me. Never. You never give up on me. Never. God will never, ever give up on you or me. And that's a promise that he made and continually reminded not only to the Jews throughout the Old Testament and the New, but to the entire human race and creation. Throughout the whole scriptures, God has reminded us that he will never, ever give up on us. We concluded last time with a wonderful passage where God said this to his chosen people, to his Christians, and to the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. It goes like this, verse 21 in chapter 10. All day long, I opened my arms to them, but they were disobedient and rebellious. All day long. Every day, God patiently waits. God patiently orchestrates opportunities for Jews and for humanity to place their trust and faith in Jesus, to join his family, to be his children so that he can love them, pour his grace and blessings on them, and enjoy their company in his presence. Waiting. Orchestrating. And as a very, very good father, always there when we cry out to him, no matter how long we've been rejecting him, he's always there to save us. God never gives up. My point today is this. Will God ever give up on the Jews? Of course not. Will God ever give up on humanity? Of course not. The real question is, Will we continually reject him until it's too late? Let's begin. Romans chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. It goes like this. I asked then, has God rejected his own people, the nation of Israel? Of course not. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham and a member of the tribe of Benjamin. No, God has not rejected his own people whom he chose from the very beginning. Do you realize what the scriptures say about this? Elijah, the prophet, complained to God about the people of Israel and said, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. And do you remember God's reply? He said, no, I have 7,000 others who have never bowed down to Baal. It is the same today, for a few of the people of Israel have remained faithful because of God's grace, his undeserved kindness in choosing them, 
And since it is through God's kindness, then it is not by their good works. For in that case, God's grace would not be what it really is, free and undeserved. Chapter 11 is divided into three parts. If you read ahead, you may have noticed that these three parts begin with a question or an inquiry made by the Gentile Christians that Paul is responding to. We just read the first question. Has God rejected his own people, the nation of Israel? And Paul responds with his famous, of course not. Then the second part of this chapter begins with this question. Did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? And Paul again responds with, of course not. The third part begins with an inquiry. More like a statement, but really there's an implying question underneath. Those branches were broken off to make room for me. And Paul responds, Yes, but, in other words, of course not. All three times, Paul is telling the Gentile Christians, you and me, that through his mercy, God has not given up on his promise he made with the Jews, the very descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, regardless of the Jews' rejection toward him. And Paul warns us that we too cannot take our salvation for granted. If we reject God, we too will end up in a similar situation like the Jews. Yet just like the Jews, God will never give up on us either. Let's take a deeper look at the first part of this chapter. Paul uses a very famous story from Elijah's life, the time where Elijah had to compete on Mount Carmel against the prophets of Baal. The time when you think Elijah should be celebrating when God showed his mighty power in front of the disobedient, idol-worshipping Jews, including King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. But instead of turning back to God, majority of the Israelites, led by Jezebel, wanted to kill Elijah. Elijah fled to the mountains and was severely depressed. He's asking himself, how can this be? God literally defeated this useless idol called Baal. Their priests and prophets were defeated. The Israelites witnessed fire raining down from heaven, consuming not only the sacrifice, but the altar itself, while Baal's sacrifice was left untouched. Wasn't that enough to convince the Israelites to turn back to God and reject Baal? But instead... They wanted to kill Elijah, the very prophet that delivered the good news to them that if they repented and trusted in God, they would no longer be in exile. No wonder Elijah was depressed because he thought to himself he was alone. So depressed, he just wanted to curl up and die because he thought that, hey, this was it. This was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. They're beyond saving now. Elijah thought. Yet God told Elijah, don't you think that you're alone? There are Israelites who are faithful and have responded appropriately in light of that demonstration he performed in front of all the Israelites. There were Israelites who responded truthfully and responded well and turned back to God and put his faith, put their faith and trust back to him. There were 7,000 apparently, and they are living proof 
that I have not given up on my promise with Israel, said God. Now, let's go blast back to Paul. Paul must have felt like Elijah as well. If you recall, Paul came from an elite group of Pharisees. He belonged to a community of smart, academically inclined Pharisees who studied under the teacher Gamaliel. He had friends in high places and a closely knit community. He had family and relatives that respected him and who loved him and he loved them. But once he encountered Jesus and turned his loyalty to him, his entire community, his family, relatives, and friends rejected him and also even wanted to kill him. Are his friends, family, and relatives beyond saving then? Has God rejected his own people? No. First, Paul says, wait a minute. Just like Elijah and the 7,000 faithful Israelites that God revealed to him, Paul says, wait a minute. Look at myself. I'm an ethnic Israelite from the line of Abraham and from Benjamin, from the very descendants who God made the promise to. And after encountering Jesus' disciples in Acts, Paul knows that he's not the only Jew who has faith in Jesus. Peter, James, John, and all the disciples of Jesus, including the Jewish Christians in front of him, are with him. So, no, just like Elijah's day, God has not given up on his original chosen people, the Jews. There are still faithful Jews among them, and one day, Paul hopes, more Jews will come back just like Paul and the disciples if they have faith in Jesus. Why? Because of God's grace. God will never give up on his promise he made with Abraham concerning his descendants, the Jews. Paul and the disciples are living proof that God will continue to orchestrate opportunities for his chosen people to come back. Let's continue. Verse 7. So this is the situation. Most of the people of Israel have not found the favor of God. They are looking for so earnestly. A few have, the ones God has chosen, but the hearts of the rest were hardened. As the scriptures say, God has put them into a deep sleep. To this day he has shut their eyes so they do not see, and closed their ears so they do not hear. Likewise, David said, let their bountiful table become a snare, a trap that makes them think all is well. Let their blessings cause them to stumble and let them get what they deserve. Let their eyes go blind so they cannot see and let their backs be bent forever. Did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? Of course not. They were disobedient, so God made salvation available to the Gentiles. But he wanted his own people to become jealous and claim it for themselves. Now, if the Gentiles were enriched because the people of Israel turned down God's offer of salvation, think how much greater a blessing the world will share when they finally accept it. I am saying all this especially for you Gentiles. God has appointed me as the apostle to the Gentiles. I stress this. For I want somehow to make the people of Israel jealous of what you Gentiles have, so I might save some of them. For since their rejection meant that God offered salvation to the rest of the world, their acceptance will be even more wonderful. It would be life for those who were dead. So, did God's 
people stumble and fall beyond recovery? Of course not. Paul continues his theme that God does not and will not give up on his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even though their descendants have been stumbling, bumbling, and rejecting God throughout their entire history, even with their biggest rejection, the rejection of their own Messiah, Jesus. Part of God's promise was to use Israel to be the light that brings all nations to God, the fullness of all nations to God. Question is, can God still use Israel the same way, for the same purpose? Israel, can he use a people who has rejected him, a people who chose the way of stubbornness, rebellion, and therefore a path that continues to harden their hearts? Can God still fulfill his promise he made with Abraham to use Israel to bring nations to himself? Answer is yes. And interestingly, he did so by allowing Israel, the Jews, to continue their choice of rejecting Jesus, i.e. they chose the path to harden their hearts, and God, as Paul says, even assisted the Israelites in their choice by continually to help to harden their hearts further, so that when they see the Gentiles, the non-Jews, take hold of Jesus and receive salvation through faith and new life, as opposed to the Jews' way, i.e. doing the motions, the rituals, the traditions and customs of the law, the Jews would be roused to jealousy and desire Jesus as well. Here, let me allow Homer Simpson to define jealousy. Take a look at this video. Dad, you shouldn't be jealous of Apu. Remember, it's all about the music. I'm not jealous. I'm envious. Jealousy is when you're worried someone will take what you have. Envy is wanting what someone else has. What I feel is envy. Huh. Wow, he's right. Jealousy is defined as the fear of someone taking something that you own that is precious. A good example of this is a married couple. A spouse is jealous of a person because she fears that this person will take away her husband. Her husband is hers and hers alone. No one can take him away from her. He's mine. You can't take him away, she says. Jesus' mission was to deliver the Jews from exile and oppression from foreign powers. He was their Messiah, their King, who the Jews were eagerly waiting for. Jesus, a true Israelite, the true King of the Jews, was supposed to be theirs, their Messiah. However, throughout the New Testament and throughout the Gospels, they rejected him. They didn't believe him. No matter how many times Jesus claimed it and proved it through miracles and countless miracles in front of them, they just wouldn't believe. Paul hopes that now, they see, now that they see the Gentiles calling Jesus as their own Messiah, and now that they see that the Gentiles are calling Jesus their Savior and their King, and now that they see the Gentiles to receive new life and salvation in Jesus, this wonderful joy that they have, Paul hopes that the Jews would behave like a jealous spouse, saying, wait a minute, Jesus was ours to begin with. He's our Messiah and Savior and King. We should get on with this. We should be in on this. We should have them too. Paul hopes that the Jews would do that. So, 
What role did the Jews' hardened hearts play here? Well, I could see two. First, they enabled the movement of the disciples and Paul to preach the good news to the Gentiles. Think about it. The Jews were persecuting these disciples and persecuting Paul. And what happened to the disciples and Paul? They spread out, called the diaspora, and they preached the good news to the rest of the world beyond Jerusalem. And so their heart and hearts enabled the movement of the disciples and Paul to preach the good news to the Gentiles. God used the hardening of Israel to force the Jews who do not who do have faith in Jesus, i.e. the disciples, Paul and the small remnant of faithful Jews to Jesus to evangelize to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are now drawn to Jesus and to those who are faithful in Jesus are now God's chosen. Second, the Jews' hardening also showed to the Gentiles and the faithful Jews that salvation is all by grace of God. That salvation can only be through faith in Jesus and faith in Jesus alone and offered by God's grace. No one can obtain it any other way. The Jews thought that they could. The Jews thought that they could just follow the traditions, the customs, and doing the motions of the law. But they forget, and they have forgotten, and they have rejected Jesus, and placed no faith and trust in him. And therefore, when I'm a Gentile looking at that, I have realized that salvation only comes through faith in Jesus alone, and it is by God's gift of grace. Let's move on. What lesson can we learn from this then? Apply today. I shared with some of you that I'm jealous of my wife's faith in God. She's devoted in God's word, yearns for God's voice and communes with him and his word every morning. When I see her devotion to reading God's word, I am jealous because, hey, I should have that too. I have God's word. Heck, I've studied it academically at Regent College. Should I not also be as enthusiastic and as eager to read God's word every day just like she? So my jealousy motivates me to devote more time in reading and meditating God's word so that I too can experience God and his presence. There are also other Christians who, I'm, who I am jealous of because of their faith. Many missionaries around the world, when I read their stories and the amazing miracles that God has performed because of their faith, I get jealous. I should have that faith as well, shouldn't I? Those who serve the poor, pastors who go above and beyond in caring for the congregation, Christians who make amazing self-sacrifices for the needy. I'm jealous. I too desire my faith to be as strong as theirs, and it motivates me to strive towards a greater faith and trust in Jesus. How about you? Does your faith make other people jealous? Do people around you see the joy in your life, the enthusiasm, the assurance, and the confidence that you have in Jesus? And they, because they see you and see your life and how you make decisions and engage with the world, when they see that, do they yearn that too? Are they jealous of it? If not, why not? Or are you the Israelites who is seeing other Christians' faith and you're jealous of their faith? Are you jealous of their faith, just like me? Well, I guess you have a choice to make. Either ignore it or be motivated and encouraged that your faith can be like that 
if you hand more of your life to God. Let's continue with verse 16. And since Abraham and the other patriarchs were holy, their descendants will also be holy, just as the entire batch of dough is holy because the portion given as an offering is holy. For if the roots of the tree are holy, the branches will be too. But some of these branches from Abraham's tree, some of the people of Israel, have been broken off. And you Gentiles, who were branches, branches from a wild olive tree, have been grafted in. So now, you also receive the blessing God has promised Abraham and his children, sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. But you must not brag about being grafted in to replace the branches that were broken off. You are just a branch, not the root. Well, you may say, those branches were broken off to make room for me. Yes, but remember, those branches were broken off because they didn't believe in Christ, and you are there because you do believe. So don't think highly of, of yourself, but fear what could happen. For if God did not spare the original branches, he won't spare you either. Notice how God is both kind and severe. He is severe to those who disobeyed, but kind to you if you continue to trust in his kindness. But if you stop trusting, you also will be cut off. And if the people of Israel turn from their unbelief, they will be grafted in again. For God has a power to graft them back into the tree. You, by nature, were a branch cut from a wild olive tree. So if God was willing to do something contrary to nature by grafting you into his cultivated tree, he will be far more eager to graft the original branches back into the tree where they belong. The Gentile Christians were bragging that they are now the real deal. That's why they were ready to write off the Jewish Christians because, hey, now that we have Jesus, we are the legit people of God and they're not. So they started bragging and Paul says, watch out. First, Paul says, you should be thankful that the Jews were hardened. It was because of their hardened hearts that you realized salvation was available to you as well. Salvation that was supposed to be for the Jews, but you, through faith in Jesus, is now part of it. Gentiles, you didn't belong to God's chosen people originally. You were not brought up in the covenant. You didn't know how to keep the covenant, nor were you originally chosen by God. You were, Paul says, a wild, uncultivated olive tree. It was only because of Jesus that through faith in him, you were adopted, or in Paul's imagery, grafted into God's family, in which you originally did not belong. So, remember how the Jews rejected God? They bragged about being God's chosen, boasted that they had it all, thinking that they could remain as God's chosen people as long as they did the motions of the law and customs. They took their chosen status for granted. And what happened? They were cut off. Paul warns the Gentile Christians, don't brag and don't take your salvation for granted because God can do the same thing to you. Here's a point for us to ponder. Many times we have a tendency to take our salvation for granted. We think that Jesus is merely a friend, someone to pat our backs, provide encouragement and comfort when we're depressed or have low self-esteem. So much so that we forget the type of life he wants us to live. A life of faith and obedience to him. A life where he is the king, the Lord of our lives. When we start taking our salvation for granted, 
we think all is well and become completely complacent in how we live. We start to treat our salvation as just a ticket to heaven, as opposed to a complete transformation of our lives that imitate Jesus. We become indistinct from the rest of the world and lose our saltiness, so to speak. We become unfaithful, and in fact, we reject Jesus and his Holy Spirit's tuggings. Paul says, watch out. Because just like the Jews, if you think that just doing the motions of going to church, doing some Bible study, yet do not allow him to transform your lives and, and have the motivation to live and imitate the life of Jesus, you too will be cut off if you're not bearing any fruit. And if you think the Jews are finished and written off, nope. If they turn to Jesus and have faith in him, they will be readily grafted back in as well. And how easy it is and how wonderful that would be when the original branches are grafted back in. So, Gentile Christians, so you and I, we need to watch out as well. Jesus is not just a friend. He is our king, our judge, and consequently, the guy who prunes. Verse 25. I want you to understand this mystery, dear brothers and sisters, so that you will not feel proud about yourselves. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts, but this will last only until the full number of Gentiles comes to Christ. And so all Israel will be saved, as the scriptures say. The one who rescues will come from Jerusalem, and he will turn Israel away from ungodliness. And this is my covenant with them, that I will take away their sins. Many of the people of Israel are now enemies of the good news. And this benefits you, Gentiles. Yet they are still the people he loves because he chose their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For God's gifts and his call can never be withdrawn. Once you Gentiles were rebels against God, but when the people of Israel rebelled against him, God was merciful to you instead. Now they are the rebels, and God's mercy has come to you so that they too will share in God's mercy. For God has imprisoned everyone in disobedience so he could have mercy on everyone. Paul has great hope that one day his fellow Jews, all of them, will come to know Jesus through their witness of the Gentile Christians' life transformations. Jesus, the Messiah, the one prophesied by Isaiah saying the one who rescues will come from Jerusalem and turn Israel away from ungodliness. Jesus, who the Jews were expecting, is now available for the Gentiles and now belong to the Gentile Christians who have now taken hold of him and placed their faith in him. See, the, Gen the Jews were supposed to have Jesus and Paul says, hopefully, in their jealousy when they see the life of Gentile Christians, they too will turn to Jesus as well. But Paul again warns the Gentile Christians by reiterating chapter 3. Remember that you had nothing to do with it, that none of what you did deserved salvation. Salvation was made available without your efforts or merits because all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Humanity, all of humanity chose disobedience and God allowed humanity to continue in their disobedience so to prove that all humanity, that, all, that salvation can only come through God's grace and mercy. Lastly, verse 33. Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. 
For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? And who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. So, to conclude, will God ever give up on us? Never. Will God ever give up on the Jews, his chosen people originally? Never. No matter how many times we stumble and fall like the Jews, no matter how many times we take salvation for granted and reject Jesus and treat him as a mere butler when we're in trouble, God will never give up on us to invite us back into his family. He will use our stumbles and bumbles, our trip-ups and our sins to provide opportunities for us to turn back to Jesus and renew our faith in him, just like he did with the Jews. It's a mystery of how God can do this, right? Because it's only God who can think up of these things. No one else can. What ultimately we need to realize is that we need to respond correctly when he does give us these opportunities. When he does give us opportunities to shine the light of the gospel to others, to be able to live and live a life that has faith and trust in him, he gives us these opportunities and we need to respond well. To realize that it's by his grace that these opportunities are available for us to renew our trust and faith in Jesus. And so to be called his children once again, just like he's doing with the Jews. So what are you going to do? When God gives you the opportunities to renew your faith and trust in Jesus, will you respond correctly? (music) 